Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 38, The New Sweden Company. Remember that this is a podcast which relies on listener support. A free and easy way of doing that is to leave an iTunes review. It's a great way of helping out to get word out about the show. In our last episode, we looked at the exploration of the Hudson River by Henry Hudson, as well as the founding of New Netherland, a series of colonies founded around the modern New York by the Dutch West India Company. Now that we have this colony founded, we can begin to take a better look at its history. I cannot overemphasize what a perfect location New Amsterdam was in. It was a settlement almost guaranteed to be a success. It just required time. It was the English who would be the main beneficiaries, and this period of the history of the region is characterised by growth which, while steady, was slow. Perhaps it could have been quicker, but the Dutch had a problem of attracting colonists. While Massachusetts Bay would be filled by religious dissidents fleeing persecution, the Dutch weren't really inclined to leave the Netherlands. Most of the free population were Walloons and Frenchmen, not to mention African slaves. To try and encourage migration, the Dutch West India Company tried creating something approaching a feudal setup in which a colonist who brought 50 settlers with them would be given a strip of land. They would have a feudal title with this land and have complete feudal control. This wasn't a great success, and the autonomy of the feudal lords created complications with the ban on foreign trade. This ban had to be sort of lifted, and the lords could acquire a license from the company as long as they paid a customs fee. While not the main industry, farming was crucial to securing a food supply for the colony. Finding that wheat and rye both grew well on Manhattan. They had settled there late on in 1625, and in 1626 they managed to export 45,000 guilders worth of grain. By 1632, this amount expanded to 125,000 guilders. While this was an important foundation, the monopoly of the fur trade the colony held was its single greatest economic advantage. The second most successful industry was alcohol production, to the extent that drunkenness became a real problem and regulation was needed. They forbade selling alcohol to the Indians, although this didn't work, and in 1638 it was required that all sailors be back on their ships once darkness fell. As for government, New Netherland supposedly had the same laws as the Netherlands, but in practice it took on a very military character stemming from the first governor, Cornelius Jacobson May, being the captain of the ship which brought them to the New World, and them keeping ship rules. This is why New Netherland is often described as an amphibian colony. 
There were other officers within the government of the colony, who controlled trade and order, as well as a council with advisers, but the size of this council fluctuated by quite some margin over time. The governor and council were all three branches of government, the executive, legislature and judiciary, only responsible to the company. Occasionally the population was able to influence government, such as forcing through a change of governor in 1647, but as a rule they had no say. There was a meeting of representatives to hear protests in 1653, but they didn't result in any meaningful changes. The only thing that altered was that sheriffs were now appointed from the local residents, but they were still appointed by the governor. This was as close as New Netherland would ever get to democracy. The cosmopolitan nature of the settlement gave it character, but it never really developed something you could call culture. The Dutch themselves weren't interested in education, only commerce. It took until 1637 for a schoolteacher to be sent over, but he couldn't live off teaching alone and had to take a second job. A school wasn't constructed until 1655, and a Latin school was opened in 1658. A fire service was created in 1657, followed in the next year by a police force. It must be remembered that this was only one aspect of the Dutch West India Company. Arguably, its priority in these years was its conflict with Spain and Portugal, We covered the initial raid in our last episode, and they continued taking the islands, but in 1630 they made a rather bold move against the Portuguese, and actually invaded Brazil, capturing the northeastern provinces, an area twice the size of the Netherlands, which was named New Holland. New Holland doesn't really have much to do with the USA but it must be noted that during the two decades or so it existed, New Holland was the focus of the Dutch West India Company, not New Netherland. It was far wealthier, more cultural, and it was a more attractive proposition to settlers than a shack on the Hudson. It was too attractive for it to be allowed to exist. The Portuguese were deeply unhappy, and recaptured the territory by 1654. It's an interesting footnote, at least. We are rapidly nearing the point where the colony became New York, but we have an important event New Netherland was involved with, because by the time it became New York, it cannot really be considered just a Dutch colony anymore. This is because of another colony to which we must now turn. New Sweden. Sweden has a long history stretching back into the murky past, where it is impossible to separate history and legend. Our overview of Dutch history was confusing, and I'm not even going to attempt to chronicle how the small kingdoms of Sweden joined together. That would be a complete waste of time in a podcast about the United States. But join together the states did. And we know that at some point in the later Middle Ages, a Swedish state came to exist, 
and that this state managed to gain control of the region which is now Finland, although it is a complete mystery how this happened. In the late 14th century, Sweden was brought together with the crowns of Norway and Denmark in the Union of Kalmar. This lasted for a century until the Union disintegrated, and Sweden once again became independent. It would spend the 16th century as a regional power, but it only becomes an important player in history in 1611, with the ascension of Gustavus II Adolphus, a man regarded as the founder of the Swedish Empire. Gustavus Adolphus was one of the most brilliant generals in world history, and is often considered the first modern general. He, within a few years, managed to turn Sweden into the third largest state in Europe, behind only Russia and Spain. He, in short, turned Sweden from a regional power into a world power. It ushered in the Stormaxstaden, literally, the period of great power, which would last until Sweden lost the Great Northern War in 1721. Sweden was the bright, new, ambitious state in Europe, and it was this newfound confidence that led it to believe that what it really needed to do was found a colony in the New World. I really need to emphasise just how upbeat the Swedes were about this, because if I don't, then their decision to found a colony makes no sense. There were a lot of reasons for it being a bad idea. I suppose when you're wearing rose-tinted glasses, all the red flags just look like flags. Just think about it. It makes sense for England, France, Portugal, the Netherlands and Spain to be involved with conducting colonial efforts in the New World. They all had direct access to the Atlantic. This was problematic for Sweden. Their heartland was around the Baltic, meaning that they would either need to go overland across Scandinavia or through Danish waters if they wanted to get to America. Both were problematic. The next issue was population size. England's population in 1600 was around 5 million. Spain had a population of approximately 8 million, and France contained 20 million people. These were all countries which could afford to send some of the population to America. In contrast, Sweden was very sparsely populated. Despite being the third largest country in Europe, it only had around a million inhabitants. This problem was complicated by the wars of Gustavus Adolphus. In the decade before his death in 1632, around 50,000 soldiers lost their lives, giving the country a reputation as a nation of soldiers' widows. Losing 5% of the population was a massive blow. The modern equivalent would be the UK losing 3.5 million people, or the US fighting a war in which 16 million young men would die. 
it's not hard to see the problems caused by such a gender imbalance. That would play out in the long-term history of the country. It was also the loss of a significant part of the tax base. Those left would have to pay a higher tax rate, not to mention the already high tax rates to fund the army, which employed perhaps 15% of the population. For comparison, the famous military state, which is the Roman Empire, never exceeded having 2% of the population in the military. And that is at a maximum, it probably never exceeded 1%. If the United States were to employ 15% of its population in the military, that would be a massive 48 million people. Having 15% of the population serving in the military is a huge drain on the economy. A massive percentage to not be producing, only consuming. Partly because of this, Sweden had a very medieval economy, which was barely moving beyond the feudal era. They had succeeded in conquering their neighbours, but they were clearly not destined for world domination. They needed to focus on reform, but nobody wanted to think about such depressing matters. They were more than happy to dream of a colonial empire on the Delaware River. There were a group of merchants operating around the Baltic who were involved with Spanish and Dutch trade, the most important of whom, at first, was Wilhelm Oselink. He was Flemish, born in Antwerp, a city presently in Belgium. He was a merchant, but was more a dreamer of expeditions than a practical trader. He was very influential in the foundation of the Dutch West India Company, but was shunned by the merchants because of his impractical ideas. Selink looked around for an audience which would be more approving of him, and he found it in the ambitious Swedish Empire. Gustavus Adolphus was clearly interested in the idea, and invested quite heavily in it. He commissioned something known as the South Company in 1627, which was to conduct Swedish trade throughout, quote, Africa, Asia, America, Magellanica, or Terra Australia, end quote, to settle foreign lands and conduct diplomacy. It was to raise funds by subscription. Gustavus Adolphus thought it was a terrific idea. He invested heavily in the project and ordered all officials, soldiers, and merchants to do the same. How could this not work? Well, the huge list of problems I've just mentioned. Sweden was suffering a manpower crisis because an already small population had been diminished by warfare. This resulted in high taxes, and the large military meant there was a lack of investment in the state's infrastructure. The end product of all these issues was that there wasn't surplus wealth to make such a venture feasible. Even if it was a good idea, and I must repeat that it wasn't, Sweden was not in a position to create a global empire no matter how successful Gustavus Adolphus's wars were. The rational thing to do 
would be for Gustavus Adolphus to not go through with this plan and instead invest in Sweden on modernising the country and wealth creation, not throwing their surplus away. But if history teaches you anything, it's that people are rarely rational. Unsurprisingly, the South Company was unable to raise enough subscriptions and the venture fell flat on its face. By 1629, the venture was, to all intents and purposes, dead. Ocelink wasn't one to give up so quickly. The South Company was transformed into the United South Ship Company, which also went nowhere. But then, in 1635, it entered its final incarnation, the New Sweden Company. While at this point, Ocelink was financially ruined, this venture was hopeful. It had received the support and backing of others involved with the Dutch West India Company, such as Samuel Bommelart. A well-connected Dutch merchant who, in addition to being a director of the Dutch West India Company, had experience of working in the region of the Delaware River, as well as an interest in Swedish markets, particularly brass, copper and grain, and he saw the possibility of trading these goods around the Atlantic. Blumart was able to form a close relationship with Axel Oxensterner, the Chancellor. They also brought on Peter Minuit, the former director of New Netherland, who had made the purchase of Manhattan Island. The stage is set. If you will allow me to quote The Barbarous Years by Bernard Balin, quote, Thus, tied to and patronised by the highest level of leadership of the Swedish government, the Swedish West India Company began its short, strange, and well-recorded career. End quote. This is all we'll have to say for this week. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then remember to check us out online. There is the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, if you want to sign up for membership. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, on Twitter, at HistoryJamie, and you can send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. <laughs>